This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Hello and welcome to this episode. In honor of World Autism Day, which was on April 2nd, I am releasing three episodes today. There's one that I released with a mom. Um, there's one that I released with a developmental behavioral pediatrician. And now I have Andy Putt, who is Mrs. Speechy P on Instagram. She is a pediatric speech language pathologist who works in the public schools and practice setting. And she is heavily involved in working with families with autism. And I'm so excited to talk to her today all about autism. Autism. Thank you for joining me today, Andy. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I love following your account. Your energy is contagious on your social media and your education is vital. So it's the perfect combination to learn from someone like that. So thank you for all you do in your real life and all you're doing on social media. Oh, yay. Well, I love you too. I think you're amazing. So excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm just really excited to talk to you because you um, work as a speech language pathologist, but you also have a special interest in autism. So what drew you to become a speech language pathologist and what drew you to specialize in autism? Sure. So I actually had, didn't even know what a speech pathologist was until about six months before I graduated with my bachelor's degree. And I was studying psychology and worked in a lab that was studying infants' perception of speech. And it was just like a light switch. Like I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And so I graduated and then went right back into my master's to do speech and totally loved it, did not look back. Um, and then right out of school, went to work for the public schools and um, worked at elementary uh, and high school for a few years. Always just really loved kids that um, have a diagnosis of autism. They're always been a preferred population to work with. They're fun. We just connect in a way that, I don't know, I, I think is special. And soon after that, I was invited to be on our school district's autism evaluation team. And so we got to do team-based, which I love. I will always sing praises for team-based. Um, but what that would be, it was me and an educational diagnostician and a school psychologist all doing autism assessments together. And because I had that opportunity to work with so many other people who were amazing, it's it just, it was so fun. And I learned so, so, so much having uh, those people to really guide me and teach me. And I just fell in love. And like I said, have not looked back. <laughs> oh, that's so great. And I just love, like I said, what you share on social media and what you're doing in real life. It means so much. And I'm just so excited for this episode because one of the things that me and Andy are going to talk a lot about is terminology, um, ways to be more inclusive. And part of that is something that I wanted to ask Andy about was when we talk about autism, there's person first or identity first. What is recommended? What do you see that most families prefer? Is there a preference? Does it vary? Do some prefer person first identity? What does it even mean person first versus identity first ident identification? Sure. So person first is what was drilled into my head in graduate school. We were taught that is the only way to say that. And that would be saying like a child with autism or a person with autism. Um, and then identity first would be if you were to say a, like an autistic child or an autistic individual. Um, and so when you see autism talked about in academia, they still will use person first. But the a 
adult population who has been diagnosed with autism is very, very vocal for the most part that they prefer identity first. Um, and so we see this as very similar to the deaf community. They feel that autism is a part of their identity. They're proud to be autistic. It's like a, it's like a whole culture. And so when I talk about autism, like publicly, I will say autistic because that is how most people prefer to be identified. But I always tell everybody, you know, really listen to what the family says. And if they do use person first, then it's probably best to just use person first to respect them. And then if it's an older child or an adult, you can just simply ask them, you know, which do you prefer? Because it could go both ways. Um, but like I said, because the majority of the adult autistic population um, does prefer identity first, that what I try to use. I really appreciate that because like you said, in academia, we did learn person first, right? Like you said, child with autism. And I, I am prone to talk like that when I talk about autism. And yeah, and it's hard sometimes because then I, I say it that way and I'm like, oh my gosh, was that the right way? Was that the wrong way? Like I'm trying to keep it straight in my head. And then I already feel like I may have offended that family when I don't have the intention of doing so. So I really appreciate you saying that, that Ask the family because you're right. Some families may still prefer that way or they prefer the other way. And I think this episode, along with the other episodes that I released today, that's the point here is that we want to be more inclusive. We want to just promote awareness and just say, hey, this is what is going on. This is what people may prefer. And asking, hey, what would be your preference? I want to learn from you. You know, I think that goes a long way for people. And that's not anything personal. That's literally just asking what their preference is. And I really appreciate you saying that because I have been practicing for about six years now and I still struggle. And some families most of my families never say anything. You know, sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, I prefer this. And they're so kind about it. And people listening, I just hope you know that if you are not sure, you don't have to be scared or say, well, I don't want to get it wrong. If you get it wrong, you'll learn. And sometimes you'll say it one way and it's the other way for another family. So thank you so much. It's really nice to hear um, how you approach that. You know, we also talk about high functioning and low functioning. That is an old terminology. Also, I think that was ingrained in medical literature and in what we learned in residency. But talk to me more about how that is not the case. How would you recommend us discuss the spectrum of autism? So it is really, really, really tricky because like you said, it is a quick way to kind of identify um, a child's needs. But what a lot of people will say is you can be what people would call high functioning, except for that behind the scenes, maybe they're not really so high functioning or they're giving up a lot of their energy or themselves to appear like they're high functioning and then still struggle. Um, and so terminology that I try to stick to is um, like a level of support that they need. So they need significant support with, um, you know, changing in routines or significant accommodations for sensory needs and just kind of be a little bit more specific about the things that they need help with or need accommodations for rather than just saying, oh, they're high functioning, um, you know, and nobody wants to hear their child referred to as low functioning, you know, and then but the same thing when people say like, oh, he's high functioning about a child, then that people just assume that means almost neurotypical or that they don't need support. And it kind of like leaves out like that there really is a need. Um, and so I think it's best to just kind of describe what those needs are when you're talking to other people. And then the other thing people will say is uh, nonverbal. And then we're trying to switch that to non-speaking. That's another thing that the autistic community prefers. So instead of low functioning nonverbal, you might say um, non-speaking and requires a substantial amount of support with daily living tasks, you know, or just kind of find some other words to describe that. Well, that's really, really great to know. And I, again, I'm so happy we're talking about this because I think myself as well as other people in the medical community are also doing this. And I think it's just, like I said, nice to know what is better and what may be better practices because we can all learn from that. So I really, I truly appreciate this. Even before we recorded this, I told you, you know, I really want to hash out all of these things because I know a lot of my listeners are parents and a lot of my listeners are medical professionals too. And I think this is great because you do work so closely with um, autistic families and autistic children. I really appreciate that. Now, what are your, in your opinion, because you do work um, so closely with families, what would be some of society's biggest misconceptions about children with um, children with autism, autistic children? <laughs> there, I did it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> 
I know it is, it is so hard. And even like when, mm-hmm. when I start talking, because it was so drilled into my head, like I have to intentionally think to say autistic. So when I'm like teaching and going on, I will just automatically say Todd with autism. And I'm like, Oh, I messed it up. But you know, but that's part of it. It's like, Oh, being intentional. And when you say it wrong, be oh, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna correct that. You know, I'm trying, I'm doing my best to be an ally and a supporter. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. But I would say one of the biggest misunderstandings would just be like that autism is bad or wrong, or it's something that has to be fixed or changed. Um, and that's another thing that the the autistic community is very verbal about. Um, because as medical professionals, we do tend to use like the medical model of disability, where it looks like that looks as if the person is the one who needs to be changed. But a lot of disabled individuals feel that it's more of a social model, which would mean we would need to change the environment. So they would do just fine if they were in a environment that was friendly to autistics and autistic communication. Um, And so I think we need to really kind of change our view on that, you know, like it's not bad, it's not wrong, it's a difference, Um, you know, and there are areas of need that a lot of people do have. um, But that doesn't really mean that they're not not going to have a a happy life or they're not going to be successful or get married or have kids. And I think a lot of people don't really understand like the wide range of autism. That's very, very true. Um, And I, again, this is why the the language is also really important and talking to you about this is important. Now, a lot of families um, on my Instagram and just obviously my patients that come into my office, the biggest question that we have is, you know, what are the characteristics? Is this milestone or is this... um, activity or thing that my child is doing? Is this something that I need to get evaluated? Is this something that I need to bring up to the pediatrician? I want to ask you, um, because there's a lot of differing, I would say, opinions, because people are like, hey, this could be something normal. This could not be something that is, you know, this is not a red flag, whatever it is. What would you say are some common characteristics that you would want a family to bring up to their child's clinician if they're seeing in their child? Sure. So always, always, I say that autism is a constellation of characteristics. So it's when things are combined. And so typically, when you have just one concern, like, you know, the stereotypical ones that everybody knows is the no eye contact, or they're flapping their arms, or they're walking on their toes, or they line up their toys. You know, when you just have one thing, that wouldn't make me be like, oh my gosh, we need to look at this um, and do an evaluation based off of one thing. But when we do have different 
differences in what I call the three key areas. Um, So that would be differences in language, differences in socialization. And then the last one really is two areas, but it's um, repetitive behavior, special interest or sensory differences. If we have differences in two of those areas, that's usually when I would recommend um, an evaluation. And so some of the differences in language could be delayed language. So they're not talking, they were slow to talk. Maybe they're using echolalia, which is um, repeating exactly what a parent says. If they're using that more frequently than flexible language, that could be a, a concern. And then socialization. This is such a huge one. And this, the whole reason why I say that parents only need to have concerns in two of the areas is because parents are not good at recognizing differences in socialization. And honestly, not just parents, therapists, people who are good at this are not good at recognizing differences in socialization because a lot of the times we think that it's antisocial and that is totally not what autism is. So autism, they can be social, they can make eye contact, they can have friends, they can want friends, you know, they can do all of those things. It just might be different or it might be difficult. Um, you know, and so that's when that's, that's why I'm like just two of the three, that's all we need. (laughs) Um, because parents can notice when kids aren't talking and they can notice when their, their play is repetitive or when they are lining up their toys or struggling to engage in pretend play. Those are easier things for people to notice that are happening. Um, you know, especially sensory sensitivity. So when you cover your note, your ears to loud noises, or, you know, you can't handle water on your face. Um, Some of those things, those are really easy for parents to note because it's kind of like present or absent and not what's the quality of this. Well, that's, I think, the hardest part, right? And that's why I think it's so important that parents are monitoring their child and looking at what they're doing in different settings is important. And then they bring it up to their child's clinician and talk to them about it. You know, pediatricians have a huge role in diagnosing autism and also walking through with the family on, okay, is this something that we are monitoring? Is this something that um, is something that I need to be evaluated? Because like you said, some of those things when they're isolated, like you said, maybe one of those things could be it's absolutely okay. But when we're starting to see it in multiple different areas, and we're like, okay, I think it's best to do an evaluation. Now, one of the biggest things that we do in pediatrics is the MCHAT. Um, So that's the modified checklist for autism in toddlers. In the United States, we do that at usually 18 months and two years. Um, And I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yes, I don't use it. (laughs) Um, So I did pull some research for us just to talk about. And so, yeah, so what research has said about the MCHAT R, it is like not, I think it was like 96% of the kids who fail um, and get referred for additional testing will have developmental delays. So not necessarily autism, but developmental delays, which is good. We definitely want to be finding those kids. Mm -hmm. Those kids are a little bit easier to find because they're missing a lot of milestones, right? You know, so we it's good to have a screener that catches those. But only 50% of the kids who fail end up getting an autism diagnosis. And I couldn't find data on this, but I have polled my followers many times and, and it makes sense. But so, so, so many kids are passing the MCHAT only to get a later diagnosis. And I'm going to go ahead and say, this is okay because I say all the time, a lot of times kids are not clear until they're five, six, seven, eight years old because they can do a lot of those social things that we talked about. And it's not a clear difference until they're older. But kids that really should be flagged at this age are passing the MCHAT. Um, and so it definitely, there needs to be some some changes for sure. Um, and then the other really, really shocking number was um, said that only 31% of kids who failed the MCHAT were referred for a specialist. And so people were not making these referrals. It's like, oh, you failed. Well, let's just wait, you know, and that's, that's really a problem because it's there for a reason. And if you fail it, we really, I'm so Mm. pro evaluation that I'm like, if anybody has a concern, let's just do it. Let's get it looked at. And then we can move Mm -hmm. forward. And if we, you know, if I see a kid for an autism evaluation and I'm like, nope, it's not autism. Like that's not, that's not a big deal. You know, like I'm giving the parents tons of information about this child. That's not, you know, all kinds of strengths and weaknesses and things that need to be addressed. And so it's still really helpful to have an evaluation, even if you don't get a diagnosis. 
Oh, I completely agree. I am so pro evaluation too. I think I've gotten more pro evaluation as I've become a pediatrician longer. Meaning when I first started, I think, and again, I think this has to do with experience, the families I'm taking care of, the fact that I see a lot of later diagnosis of autism. And then I look back and I think, hey, was there something that we could have done differently earlier on? You know, that's always what I'm doing with my families. Anytime I have a family who we finally make a diagnosis, just say at two and a half years, I talk with the family. You know, I say, hey, look, what do you think we could have done differently at two years and 18 months? And they also agree that doctor, we were watching the same things. I went to early intervention. They said it was only a speech delay. We were monitoring the things that we were supposed to monitor and we were closely doing that, right? So you said it perfectly that sometimes that diagnosis just truly comes out later. It doesn't mean that that was a failure to diagnose. It was just progression of maybe now we're seeing that happen, right? Right, right. And that's what I'll say. I, I have missed kid. Like I'll have admitted a, a child at four years old and then come back at six or seven and be like, what on earth? Why did I say no? You know, because it's so clear at a later age. But earlier, the social demands for a three or four year old, they're really not that much, you know, but then once things get more complicated with relationships and school, then it's sometimes it's a little bit easier to see at that older age. Well, I would like to talk about the questions on the M chat only because I think so many of my listeners have filled this out. And I do think we have a little bit of time. And I think when, by doing this, we're going to be able to kind of also talk, well, if this characteristic or this thing that they're talking about, what are your thoughts um, as someone who is very specialized in this? What are your thoughts about that? So I have 20 questions and we're, we'll go through, I'll jump around if we need to. Um, I'm going to not do all of them. I'm just going to do some of them. So the first one was, if you point at something across the room, does your child look at it. And it's, you know, a yes or no question. So right, which is a major problem in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what your problems with that question is. Yeah. Right. So the the first problem is the yes or no, because there will be zero children who point, who look every single time that a parent, yes. like nobody's yes. going to do that 100% of the time. Um, but then also probably nobody, I mean, there probably are some kids that are going to do not follow you 0% of the time, but these, this question is so vague. And so if I was going to like take a probe at this, I would point across the room and look at the child and I wouldn't say anything. And then I'd look back to what I was pointing at and see what they did. And if they didn't respond, I might go, <gasps> you know, and see if they look and respond to that gas. Okay. But parents don't know this. And so parents could be pointing across the room and saying, look, Look, look at the dog, 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 you know, and by then the dog's barking yeah. and running around. And so is the child following your point or are they listening to your directions to look at something? Or did they hear you say dog or were they like, oh, something's mm -hmm. barking? Or when the dog started running around, were they looking at the dog running around? You know, and so it's really unclear, like how to do some of these yeah. And you said it perfectly that the yes or no part of the M chat is really hard because you can't put a child into a yes or no, because like you said, many times they're not doing it all the times. I spend a lot of time talking about the responses on the M chat, meaning I rather just talk to the family about the things that you mentioned, you know, the repetitive play, the lining up of the toys, the, the speech, the struggling and pretend play, all those things. I'd rather talk to them about what they're seeing, what they're seeing in preschool or school or at home um, in other settings versus, okay, well, is it sometimes? Is it not? They're like, well, sometimes. And like, and they even say they're like, yes or no. It's not always yes or no. And I, I agree with you completely. What we're talking about here is something called joint attention. And I think that's something that commonly comes up is not having joint attention, in your opinion, an automatic red flag or something that we need to evaluate? I think a lot of the times it would be a um, a concerning sign. You know, a lot of other speech therapists will not agree, but those kids that are getting those diagnoses later, they will have been in an early intervention, they will have been working on joint attention. Um, you know, so you see that a lot in kids' history. And really what joint attention actually is, you're not even supposed to point. So you're just supposed to look and then look at the child and then look back at the thing. And so that would be them responding to joint attention if they looked at what you looked at. But what we really want them to do is initiate joint attention. So we want them to show us something that they like by looking at the eye. Item, looking at us and looking back to the item or looking at the adult and looking at the item and looking back to the adult to make sure that they're looking at what they wanted them to. So it's really nuanced and it's really hard for parents to follow all of those pieces. 
Oh, yeah. And I have like a few more on that M chat that I think can also go into that same. Well, you know, is it is it not the um, the other one is the comment of, or the question, does your child play pretend or make believe example, pretending to drink from an empty cup, pretending to talk on a phone or pretending to feed a doll or stuffed animal. You mentioned that in terms of the pretend play, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is a really good question. And I think a lot of pediatric, you're very good because a lot of the times people will be like, nope, we didn't do any follow-up questions. And so like a lot of people, you get the M chat and it's just the questions. And then if you fail, that's when your um, provider is supposed to go over the follow-up questions. And the follow-up questions are actually really, really good questions, except for that it's way too easy to pass. And so when we have a, you know, the MCHAT's for 16 to 30 months old. And so if you have a 16 month old who can pretend to drink from a cup, that's a pass for pretend play, even though there's a whole list of other pretend plays. And if you say no to all of them, because they did the cup, that's a pass. But kids can do that. Like that's, you drink from cups all the time. That's really not even, I mean, that's more of a functional play if you were, if I was going to get down to the nitty gritty, but it's more of a functional thing. Like I know how to drink from a cup. It's really not that creative to do that, you know? And so I think it's really easy on a lot of the follow-up questions to end up passing when really kids should probably not be passing. Uh, the other one um, is, does your child make unusual finger movements near his or her eyes? For example, does your child wiggle his or her fingers close to his or her eyes? This one is one that I'm always having to clarify and ask families. Um, would this be something you'd want to clarify? Is this something that we should, like, what should parents know when they're answering that question or, or their pediatrician ask, that, ask them that question? Yeah. So this is, is a one of the very few signs that almost always autism. And so when I'm asking a parent this, I am going to wiggle my fingers um, on the sides of my eyes or in front of my face. Um, I'm doing it now. I know you can't see me, but like, it's almost like if you were going to uh, put your two fingers beside your face and take a picture, like click, click, um, those kinds of things or waving fingers in front of your face. So I have to kind of sh- do it with my body for them to be like, oh, okay, yeah, they do that. Um, because a lot of the times they're not, unless a child's doing it very frequently and the parent is like, I don't know what is going on and I can't make them stop. Parents don't seem to really notice that. But that goes along with finger posturing. And you'll see this even not near the eyes as well. So if you see unusual finger movements, that is very common um, in autistic kids. It is a kind of stim and it helps them to regulate themselves. So it's a very good motion. You want them to be able to do that. It means they're calming and regulating themselves. But it is an atypical sign. We don't usually see that in typically developing kids. The next one is... Uh, is your child interested in other children? For example, does your child watch other children smile at them or go to them? And again, we're doing this at 18 months and again at two years. What are your thoughts on that question in regards to making a diagnosis or is this a concern? So this one's one of those really, really tricky ones because a lot of kids will watch other kids play and that can be typical or it could be atypical, you know. And so this one's one where I would want to ask a lot more questions like, are they engaging in parallel play where they're next to them? Maybe are they imitating the other kids play? Are they trying to make sounds or doing some kind of interactions with them? Um, but yeah, that one is that one is a I think it's a good question, but it is really hard hard to get a good clarification. And especially now with COVID, because <laughs> nobody knows what their kids are doing socially. <laughs> you know, like I don't even, my son's in school, but I don't really know what he's doing because we're not having our parent teacher conferences and we're not going into the school. It's for the kids only right now. Um, you know, so I think some of these questions, especially right now are difficult to answer. And the last three I'm going to go over again, there's 20, I'm not going to go through all of them. But these are ones that again, I think I get a lot of common questions about on my social media. And then I talk to families a lot too. The next one is, does your child respond when you call his or her name? For example, does he or she look up, talk or babble or stop when he or she is doing when you call his or her name? So responding to name. Yeah. And so you want to see your child responding to their name the majority of the time. Of course, this is one of those things, especially if your child is really engaged in something. So if you have um, an iPad and <laughs> you're calling your child's name, probably you are calling their name to tell them to get off the iPad or do something that is going to disrupt their iPad time. So it is very likely um, neurotypical or um, neurodivergent to uh, not 
respond to that. Um, and so when you try, want to test this out, you'll want to do it when your child is not engaged in their, in their favorite activity. And then you want to see them look towards you. Um, so even just stopping or kids will say, what? But then they don't really look. You want to see them looking and responding more often than not. This is great. I'm glad we're going through this because of these little educational pieces that you're able to give in terms of having parents understand, you know, well, what, how can you engage properly to see if you can elicit that milestone um, or that developmental um, assessment? I wanted to quickly ask about babbling. You know, that question talked about babbling. Um, you know, there is some thought. Um, and I've been told this by some of my followers and I've actually read places about delayed babbling, right? Delayed babbling can be a concern of autism. Have you heard this too? Yes. I mean, because delayed babbling usually precedes delayed speech. And so, right. yeah, so they kind of go together most of the time. But it's also delayed babbling with the other things. I want to clarify the delayed babbling with the other things that you mentioned too, right? It's obviously a, um, a constellation of symptoms. So I think when we talk about milestones, especially on social media, I, I explain to families that it's really hard for us to make diagnoses over social media, one, because we're not your doctor. Number two, it's because it is a big picture, right? If your child's not babbling, but they're doing other things like turning to their name, they're starting to show um, signs of pretend play, like they're doing other things. And I'm like, I'm going to be not as not be as concerned. But that's why it's so important that if you're concerned about anything, you're you can bring it up to your child's clinician, and they can look at the whole picture. Um, one thing that I always tell my patients or um, more so my followers on my Instagram is if you're concerned and you tell your child's clinician that I'm concerned and they tell you, okay, I'm not concerned. I want you to ask them in a nice way, not like, well, why not? Just say, I appreciate you. What about my child is not concerning you at this moment? I think it's really important to hear that from the child's clinician, because then you will get that big picture and say, you know what? I'm not concerned because your child's doing X, Y, and Z, but I, I want to monitor that. I think the clinician clinician's duty is to provide that for a family who is concerned. Because if we're saying that you don't need a referral or whatever it is, I'm not saying that you're pushing back. I'm saying that you have the right to say, well, what is it? What is it about my child's development? And, you know, they should be able to help you guide that and say, this is something that I'm seeing that's positive. This is something that maybe I want us to monitor in a couple months, um, or I want you to work with um, the child on. So I think that's a really important point too. For sure. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. Model, so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, are you loving the show? You're halfway through, so I hope that you are. This is a reminder that if you love the show, appreciate our guests, and want to continue to hear amazing conversations, to leave those reviews and ratings. Reviews and ratings are how a podcast continues to grow and reach more people. And the more people we reach, the bigger we can get and the more amazing free content we can provide for you. Yes, you may hear some ads like this one, but my goal is to be able to provide free and accessible health, development, and parenting content to you via the show. Leave a review and rating and update reviews after you hear a powerful episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I think that it's really important for doctors and therapists and clinicians to not dismiss a parent's concerns. I think it's okay to say at this point in time, you know, it's it's not a concern to me, but if you are concerned, let's let's go. Let's move forward, you know, or if it's not babbling, I might say, well, that could be typical 
or it really, it could be atypical. We just need to give it time um, because sometimes when we really close the door and people say it, it's not a concern, they're fine. Parents will start to feel like they are um, were over worrying or stressing out or overanalyzing um, when really that parent just needs support and understanding and somebody to say, oh, if you're concerned, then let's just go, you know, let's just go on. And I've been so blessed that my pediatrician has has been like that with me because my son has a variety of, we've seen all kinds of specialists because of whatever different thing has popped up in his development. Um, and he's been really good with saying, well, I'm not that concerned, but I'll put, you know, let's get a referral for occupational therapy or physical therapy, you know, and he's really, really supportive of me going to see the specialist and sending me those referrals. And a lot of times I'll hear parents who don't have that support. You know, it's more just like, no, I'm not worried. And then there's no follow-up conversation and no referrals. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, this is such a great episode already, Andy. I, I'm so grateful. It's just so nice to talk to you, one, because I don't really get to talk to a lot of specialists besides doing this podcast, right? So through this, I'm able to talk to people like you. I talk to another, like I said, developmental behavioral pediatrician about autism. I talk to moms. Um, it's just so much that we can learn, um, even for me as a pediatrician who's been doing this. I, I so appreciate this. The last two I wanted to talk about from that M chat were again, just a few um, few more, was does your child get upset by everyday noises? For example, does your child scream or cry to noise such as a vacuum cleaner or loud music? Mm-hmm. And so this is another one where the, <laughs> the follow-up questions are helpful, but you know, it's because it's, it's pointing, the way that it frames it is that it's only atypical if kids cover their ears and scream or like they get totally dysregulated. And while that yeah. is common in autistic kids, a lot of kids can stay regulated and they'll just cover their ears and they can remain calm when those sensory differences happen. But then also so many kids, when you, when I, I hear a loud sound like when our fire alarm goes off at school I'm covering my ears because it's really loud and it hurts you know so I think you need to consider how often these reactions are and when we look at sensory you'd want to look at is it more than just loud sounds so is it sensitive to washing hair are they a picky eater are they bothered by tags in their clothing when you tend to have a bunch of different sensory responses to their environment that's more indicative of this could be a sensory problem processing disorder? And could this be a characteristic of, of autism? Oh, great point. Um, and I'll get into that in a bit about the picky eating. Also, that's not even mentioned on here. And I, I'll explain what I talk to families about and what I educate parents about. And I'm just curious your thoughts too, um, if you think this is appropriate. But the last thing is um, on this M chat that I wanted to go over, does your child look you in the eye when you are talking to them? Uh, playing with him or her or dressing him or her. So basically the eye contact question that we get a lot about milestones. Mm -hmm. And this is another one that people in general are not good at um, recognizing because the general population tends to think of, of eye contact as either present or absent. So you're either making eye contact all the time or they never, ever, ever make eye contact. And then that's another when the follow-up questions to pass, it's just look you in the eye five times a day. Like that's not that difficult to do. Even a child who is avoidant of eye contact can probably still make eye contact five times a day. Um, and so this is a really tricky one because you want to see it is typical to see a child make eye contact when they're showing you something or asking for something when you call their name, um, when you're sh sharing enjoyment, are they looking at you and smiling to show you that they're having fun? There's really a lot of really, again, nuanced differences in eye contact, um, but you can make eye contact a hundred times a day and still be autistic. Um, so these kids, they can do it. It's not a present or absent thing. And then also you'll see kids who make really, really intense eye contact to where you're like, oh, this is a little bit uncomfortable for me because you're like staring into my eyeballs. And, you know, probably because a parent has been scared about autism and has drilled, you need to look people in the eyes. And so they are looking into your soul, you know, <laughs> with the eye contact. And so that's, yeah, that's a really hard one for non-specialists to recognize. 
And again, I think the summary of all of this is that you can't do, it's not always so clear as to do yes or no. It really may be involving a lot more explanation, a lot more, well, what is going on? And so when you do, if you are answering this MCHAT and you are concerned about the questions on the MCHAT, absolutely talk to your clinician. Like Andy's saying, like I'm saying, um, make sure you are expressing your concerns because your concerns are very important. You're with your child way more than a clinician who only sees you for 10 to 20 minutes. Um, so important. You know, one thing I often tell my families, and I want to word this in a very proper way. So, you know, we talk, when I talk about parenting, when I talk about parenting in that first five years, I talk about sleep, eating, and behavior. These are three things that parents are often asking me questions about, right? Why is my child not sleeping? Are they a picky eater? Um, how are they able to handle emotions? And I talk to all of my families about it. And, you know, I talk about boundary setting for, for these children. I talk about, you know, ways to help them learn how to settle on their own, ways to help them settle with your help. And I always tell my families that if we're starting to see that you are implementing the boundaries and you're implementing these things, but it's just not sticking. The sleep is not sticking. The eating is is not going well. And the behavior is affected. When you start to see that trifecta affected, I am getting concerned that is there something developmentally going on that we need to evaluate? This is not boundary setting. This is something that is coming from the child that we need to evaluate to see, is this child needing assistance in these areas in like early intervention standpoint, or is this something that we need to fine tune? I have had so many of my autistic children. I did it. I got it right this time. I think. Yeah. I've had so many of my autistic children that have seen me later, right? Meaning I'm talking like three, four, and we, we backtrack. And this is how I'm kind of understanding. We backtrack and I'm like, look, how is your child? I'm not saying that all children don't sleep well and are picky eaters and um, have meltdowns, but I'm looking at trends and I'm saying, hey, look, I was noticing, the parents say, I was noticing that this wasn't going well, this wasn't going well. And I know that's probably looking back and, you know, maybe trying to nitpick everything. But I, I do think it's important that if we're seeing a lot of domains affected, right, the development, but also behavior and also just, you know, like you said, the things that they're doing, it's important to bring that up and not say to yourself, well, maybe I'm not doing something right. Maybe your child and you need the assistance in terms of developmental, you know, early intervention, ABA, if that turns out to be an autistic diagnosis. But I think it's really important to remember that too. Right. Well, and so I think it's definitely important to point out that you can be autistic and not have behavioral difficulties. You can be autistic and you can sleep just great and picky eating, you know, and especially the the behavior and um, sleeping, those are not key components. Like that's nowhere in the DSM, but those are often, um, you know, I think that a lot of the meltdowns are what is coming from changes in routine when they weren't prepared and becoming dysregulated because of the sensory world around them. Um, and then I think the other thing that we need to talk about is ABA really isn't the only option for these kids. It does tend to get prescribed a lot, but that's definitely not the only option. And I think parents need to definitely know that and think about that and learn about it and really be aware that there are a bunch of different options. What are some other mistakes you think that we're making when diagnosing um, autism? We talked about obviously this this MCHAT stuff, but what other things would you want to you know talk to me about or just kind of explain? I think one of the biggest mistakes is that specialists, so people who are evaluating for autism, are still sticking to the stereotypes and they're not broadening knowledge of the wide range that autism can look like, specifically girls. We know girls are not getting identified. Um, you know, a lot of them are getting identified later in their late teens um, or many, many adults. So a lot of times when I'm evaluating a child, the parent's like, but I did that. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah, you did. Because, you know, and then they end up getting their diagnosis. And at 30 or 40 years old, these are the kids that were too social to get the autism diagnosis. And there's really a big problem because people are like, well, if, if nobody's no noticing that they have a need, then why do we need to evaluate them? But there's research and these um, women now are speaking about masking, which is hiding their differences and imitating other people. And there's a lot of emotional trauma around that because they are pretending to be somebody that they're not because they think something's wrong with them. And there's nothing wrong with them. Their brain is just different. It's wired differently. They think differently. They respond differently to their environment. And they didn't learn all of the social, um, the, you know, the unwritten social rules that you and I learned just by observing the world around us. And 
so they don't understand when they make somebody mad, like why that happened, because they didn't know that it was rude to tell the truth, you know, in certain situations or things like that. And so I think that we need to be better at recognizing the social kids or the the intelligent kids. Those are the ones that we are missing a lot. Um, and so a lot of times I'll say a lot people will uh, miss the forest for the trees. And so I'll get a child and they'll have a slew of diagnoses. So they'll have language delay and um, sensory processing disorder, ADHD, OCD, and anxiety. And I can just look at that on paper and be like, why didn't you do an autism evaluation? Because what's more likely? Could it be the one diagnosis that kind of encompasses all of those? Or is it more likely to actually be six or seven different diagnoses? You know, like this. This is way more likely to be autism, um, but people will see, oh, they're social. So it's not autism, but it's definitely all of the other components of autism. And then the person will be like, but I've struggled socially my whole life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is so true. And you said, you know, I think it's so important that we make the diagnosis. I think there is, uh, there's still a fear of having a diagnosis. And I, I want to... I wish I could just scream it from rooftops. The, the the diagnosis is not supposed to be a negative thing. This is not what we want. We want we want your child to have the help that they need in terms of whether that's some specialized services, anything like that. Again, we want to be pro-intervention, right? Pro-intervention is what we want. And I think even now there is a fear of like, well, I don't want the label. And I'm like, well, it's it's not about the label in my eyes. I mean, I don't know if you hear this too in the, with the families you work with, but I don't, it's not the label. I want you to get what your child needs so that they can have the best outcome for them in that time frame that's so vital right? So I'm sure you hear that too. I mean, we talk about older, you know, 40 year olds who get diagnosed, they went their whole life. And maybe, maybe just maybe if they got that a little bit earlier, they, you know, it would have been something that could have affected their life differently. And maybe they, you know, they dealt with that. And that's fine. But I just think it's so important that we're so pro-intervention. And that is the purpose of these episodes is talking about, hey, if we are concerned, you are concerned, there's nothing wrong with getting the evaluation. And if you are evaluated, we want to get the services or intervention that's needed. Right. Well, and if your child gets an autism diagnosis, they are the same child as they were before they got the autism diagnosis. They have the same needs. They have the same every single thing. You know, they can still have, a lot of people think that that takes away their future. They're still going to have the same exact future, really, is if autism's written on a piece of paper or not. But we have a better understanding of how they're going to learn. The report should come with a lot of recommendations on how you can help them and support them in their areas areas of need. And then also we know that a lot of autistic people have depression and uh, eating disorders and a lot of mental health issues. And once they find out that it's just a difference in their brain and nothing is actually like wrong with them, that can really help support a lot of those mental differences because it takes, it just takes a weight off their shoulders and they can really understand, um, you know, like I'm not bad at making friends. I just go about it a different way. You know, like that's all that it is. It's just something that's different and it's not something that I was doing wrong, you know? Um, and then it also can help them find their, find their people, you know, <laughs> the studies show that neurotypicals and autistics really struggle to communicate amongst themselves, but autistic to autistic communication is um, just as successful as neurotypical to neurotypical communication. And so, um, you know, I think I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing a higher incidence is because they are getting married and having kids and, uh, you know, it's all about genetics and, um, but it's definitely, you know, they can be happy and they can have kids and, um, and do all the things. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Andy, this was so awesome. I love talking to you about all of this. Um, what would be your final message for everyone listening today? I think, um, you know, that first of all, I think we all need to kind of move away from thinking autism is a bad thing. You know, so we, a lot in the media right now, we're talking about racism and there's a really similar bias when it comes to looking at disabilities. And so we do have bias against that. If I asked you flat out, do you think that people with disabilities are less than, you would of course say no. But then when we look at how we go about things, it's not, it's not all inclusive of everybody, you know, and there's a term that's called ableist and it's kind of like racist, but for disabilities, 
And even though I know all about ableism, I still will make an assumption that is ableist because I don't have a disability. I've never been discriminated against. I'm not, I've not been in that position. Um, but I think if we're really aware and we, um, and we try, we talk openly about autism, we teach our kids about treating others the same or how they can be inclusive, you know, I think we can make the world better. But definitely just opening your mind to autism and not being closed minded about what you think it is, but broadening your awareness, I think it can change the world and not just for autistic kids or um, neurodivergent individuals, but for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad we were able to talk about this. And again, I just so I so loved being able to learn from you about the terminology, the the way we speak about this, you know, the um, we talked about the not high functioning, low functioning, the first person first, identity first. These are all things that are so important that I think we need to do to just spread awareness and also just um, spread education about autism. The two and everyone, more, please, and I'm, I'm not calling yeah, go you ahead. out, but you did say these. Because we do, we just say these automatically, but red flags, when we say that to parents, it's, I mean, it sounds so scary, right? And so we want to talk about it in a less yeah, in a less scary way, but red flags and symptoms, we are so medically based in our thinking. That's just how we talk and we don't mean them to be a negative thing. But if we kind of put ourselves into parents' perspectives, when we start hearing scary words like red flags and symptoms, it's a lot scarier than than if you were to say um, characteristics or traits or, um, you know, it's a condition rather than a disorder. Um, you know, you can really kind of present autism in a less scary way than what a lot of people do. Okay, perfect. No, I, I completely, I completely agree with that. And I even talked to you about that beforehand. And again, I slip and I I'm trying, I mean, I really do try. And I, you know, the more I keep talking about this with, um, with you and with more families and with other people, it really helps obviously. And I think this is kind of how we, we learn because a lot of this comes from the training, you know, we, we were told, that the terminology, red flags, all of these terminologies that we are trying, that we talked about on this episode. So thank you so much for calling it out. We've talked about that on my Instagram too. When I messaged you, I remember, I remember asking you, I was like the terminology. Yeah. Yes, it is so ingrained. And when you just start talking and you're, and you can't, I mean, we can't be intentional about every single word that we say when you're having a quick paced conversation. But I think that when you are more intentional about it, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But then if you do that enough times, it will change what your automatic verbiage is. Absolutely. Oh, everyone, you have to follow Andy at Mrs. Speechy P on Instagram. And like I said earlier, her account has so much education about development, um, <laughs> especially obviously speech language as a speech language pathologist. But her energy, like you can hear on this episode, is so refreshing. I love what she brings to social media and to the world. Um, so thank you again for joining us. And I'll attach her um, Instagram handle on my show notes. Perfect. Yay. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.